encourage you just to take it out, as if we're taking communion or something. Let's partake together. This would be the time that you could pop that in your mouth. Now, there's different ways to eat this. You could just put it in and start chewing, which would be the wrong way. Uh, I believe in nibbling on it. I believe with conviction that a truffle should just melt because a truffle should be savored. So here's the thing. I believe that when we talk about hospitality, it has a taste. I believe that when we talk about hospitality, it has an aroma. I believe that when we talk about simple, basic, and ordinary acts of hospitality, it has a touch. And my hope is that in our conversation tonight, you at least gain a reference point for where someone's act of kindness, of mercy, of openness, of generosity, of hospitality has touched your life. Ours was a home where hospitality was practiced regularly. Typically, when we think of hospitality, we think of opening your home up and having lots of visitors. But if you're in a concentration camp, and if you're sitting there being given a piece of chocolate, that feels like the biggest gift in the world. So whether you feel like you have a gift of hospitality, whether you feel like you've received hospitality or grew up in a home of very incredibly hospitable people or not, I think the smallest acts of kindness communicate the biggest messages. So as you savor the flavor of a chocolate, remember the difference small acts can have in people's lives. Now, I remember growing up, we had sort of an open door. Now, my mom immigrated from Norway, so our home had lots of uh, extended family, some we never knew, or like friends of family, that always ended up because every European wants to come and visit San Francisco. It gave us a chance to know and to be connected with all of our relatives from the old country. But it wasn't just that. For 19 years, my dad would get on a, a mercy ship for about two months a year, and he would go to ports, usually in third world Africa, though he was in Eastern Europe, and he was down in, in um, South Pacific and other places. But he met people from all over the world. And on this mercy ship would be people of maybe medical and dental and agricultural and construction, all these kinds of efforts, and they would dock and go out except they'd all call, call up uh, my dad when they got to San Francisco. And so we would have all these missionaries come and stay with us. And then whenever the church had a traveling speaker or a missionary, it felt like we were going to be the stop. So we would just always have people. I remember there was a single mom who had gotten herself into some trouble. And she had these two young kids and gotten sucked into a cult. And my mom just writing her letters. And this cult had taken all of her money. <laughs> and she had nowhere to go but she came with her kids for an extended stay in our house. That became the norm, and there was just simply always room for more. And so I learned from an early age 
the value of an open chair, the value of we've got room. And it really formed something in me about my faith because it also informed a very tangible way that I learned to demonstrate my faith to my kids. So we have made it a very spiritual practice of hospitality in our home because we didn't want to just teach our kids about Christianity that we go to a building and we go to our classes, but, or we serve on a committee or we have a little ministry, but that faith was a way of life. And all that we have was a gift, so all that we have is worth making an offering. So this house, well, it is the bank slash the Lord's, so let's make it available to other people. And so uh, we used to have gatherings monthly, weekly, sometimes 75 to 90 people. And the kids were part of the hospitality because it was tethered to our faith that we would invite people who were away from family, living in apartments, eating out constantly for home-cooked meals because that, for us, was just a simple way that we could extend hospitality and share it with others. Now, there's a verse that's often inspired me, um, but it's also made more sense to me the older I get. Because when we talk about hospitality, I think we're talking about two things. And I want to be clear about this because there's a way to listen uh, to this and hear yourself as one or the other. And I would like to suggest to you that this is a both and listening exercise. And hospitality, I believe, is our ability to simply make room for others. It could be a friend, it could be a stranger, it could be a neighbor, or it could be simply the least of these. It doesn't even need to always be into your living room or at your family table. It could be just making room for them, whatever that might mean. Now, the second uh, way I want us to listen to a definition of hospitality is our ability not just to make room, but it's also our ability to receive acts of kindness, favor, and generosity from another. Now, if we are honest, we would rather be on the giving end of that. Maybe because we're control freaks. Maybe because we don't like taking a handout. Maybe because it's a little too humbling for people to do certain acts on our behalf and we want to keep a scorecard like somehow I owe them that or we don't want to live with that indebtedness. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's this verse that's always inspired me but again, the older I get, it's meant more and more to me. And it comes out of Hebrews chapter 13. You might be familiar with it, but it's simply these words. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. My mom grew up in occupied Norway during the Nazi occupation. And she would tell story after story of what it was like. And it wasn't that they were poor. They did have some money, though their means were limited. But there just wasn't enough stuff to buy. And so she tells the story of her and her two other siblings being sent off to live with different relatives outside of Oslo, the capital. 
Because if you got out to the country, there was more opportunity for resource, namely food. People could grow their own out in the country. And so there would be more produce or there might be more meat. And they talked about what it was like when things were rationed. And what's interesting, in times of scarcity, the thing that came out was generosity. That seems sort of counterintuitive. But I think it's counterintuitive when you come from an abundant culture. But when you're in a, a scarce time, you see really remarkable acts of generosity. So sometimes they would just begin to barter and trade what they had, whether it be clothes or food or whatnot. But mom tells the story at one time they were able to get a hold of a pot roast. A pot roast that would probably last several days and could feed the family for almost a week, but instead, they cut it in half. Because it was worth sharing the blessing. She tells the story of her older brother and he says, Mom, we always pray about everything. Could we pray for butter? Because up until that time, the way they lubricated anything that was a wee bit dry was with cod liver oil. Now that just has a really unpleasant sound to it. Mom to this day won't finish a glass of milk. She won't even sip milk because the way she took her medicine, her vitamins in the day, was that there was a glass of goat's milk that had just been milked. It was warm and it was cod liver oil because that was supposed to be some supplement. And well, if you know what milk and the, you know, the <clears throat> complexities of milk and, and what would happen to cod liver oil, it would just go down to the bottom. It would be like, no, keep, come on, Dorian, all the way. And that last swallow was the murderous swallow. They were tired of cod liver oil. So her older brother Arnold says, Mom, we pray about everything. Can't we just pray about butter? Sure, we'll pray about butter. And wouldn't you know it? It was just within the next day that someone showed up having scored, like, an extra stash of butter willing to share with neighbors because that's simply what you did. So when you grow up with little, you understand the value of something. Maybe when we grow up with too much, we take too much for granted. It doesn't matter what it is, and it doesn't matter how small or how slight. There's something that God has created us for that I think reveals his truest self. So I said earlier, hospitality is simply making room for another, whether it be a friend, a stranger, someone in need, an enemy, or the least of these. But hospitality is also our learning to receive from another. Think about this. When have you felt the most connected to a group? When is it that you felt like a friendship, a relationship came most alive? My guess is it's when you felt your greatest contribution. When you found a way that you could be a good friend. When you felt a way that you could make a difference or simply just meet a need. There are people in this room that we have gotten so incredibly close to because they have met us in some of the darkest hours of our lives, whether it be with our family or whether it be with our finances or whether it be feeling lonely or whether it be what to do on a Friday night. 
but people who have just contributed out of the ordinary and the abundance of their lives. Now, if you're like me, you want to say this, no, it's okay. I'm fine. I'm good. No thanks. Oh, we went to too much trouble. Right? What is it in us that refutes the very hand and the presence of God that would shun intimacy? I would contend this. The greatest revelation that you will have for God's presence to have an intimate experience is really based on your ability to learn to receive. Because God wants to show himself through his creation. And yet we find ourselves straight-arming people like this. I'm good. Thanks. No, I'm fine. I remember running past a friend's house, and she saw me run by. And then I came back on my way, coming back up the hill, and I ran past her. And she had greeted me out on the lot. And I was on a six-mile run, and she came out. It was one of those humid days where you feel like you're running with someone piggyback. I'm just sweating profusely, and she comes out with water, and I look at her, oh no, I'm fine, I'm good. And I'm running up this hill called Hillbilly, if that gives you any idea how steep it is. And I'm going, and why did I say no to the water? Because I didn't want her help? It was something dumb of me. And yet, we were just, in fact, I would even say this if you come here tonight, or if you have a friend who battles Christian skepticism, we live in a world that is really skeptical about the institution and the reality of God in our life. To which I would say, if you want to overcome your doubts, if you want to build a bridge to the God of the universe, I don't have to come up with a more persuasive argument. I would simply suggest to you, try learning to receive from people more. And see if the reality of God doesn't begin to soften your heart. I have been in places in our lives, in our life, that I didn't have a choice but to say yes and thank you. And those have cauterized some of the most lifelong friendships because of simple hospitality offered to us in the form of meals, in the form of holiday invites, in the form of what to do on a Friday night. And it has made such a lasting impression. And so I would suggest for us to practice a spiritual rhythm of hospitality. We're in a series now defining our seven rhythms. And the rhythms are ways that teach us how to express a belief about who God is. Now the idea behind the rhythms that we'll learn is that the rhythms help us, I think, form Christ in us. But the idea is that if we practice these things, it will also impact the communities in which we live. So, does Austin need another church? No. Not if you define church by another really dynamic worship service, although I love this time. Have I said that already? But if people who are called by his name learn to have a very tangible expression of what faith looks like, hospitality. That's what we're talking about tonight. Jesus begins to teach his disciples about hospitality. If you grew up in church, you probably heard it something sound more like 
we wanted to teach them how to do the work of evangelists. I would simply say my language is hospitality. And what Jesus does in Luke chapter 9 and then Luke chapter 10 is he inaugurates a new era of his ministry. And what he does is he grabs the 12 and he sends them out. And he says, you've been watching me preach, you've been watching me teach, and you've been watching me heal. Now I want you to go out in pairs and do the same thing. What he's doing is he's previewing what we came to know as the Great Commission, which comes later. After his resurrection, his parting shot. All authority has been given unto me, and I give it to you. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching, baptizing, all into the world. Jesus is making kind of a second and now a third lap through the Galilean countryside in Luke chapter 10. Beck, you have some outlines tonight, and there's some space just to jot some notes. I would encourage you to do that each week. These are just some maybe inspirational thoughts or a, a word, a phrase that might stick out to you. Maybe something from the text that you can refer back to later. But I want to look at Luke chapter 10 with you because I think this idea of practicing a rhythm of hospitality is so critical to a couple of things. One, how we're going to experience God's love. And number two, how God wants to grow his church. Now, this is a new phase, as I suggested, and it's the third tour. So the first tour, Jesus comes through, and he's simply with the four fishermen. On the second lap through the Galilean countryside, Jesus is wandering through with the twelve. Now he comes through, and he's got the seventy-two with them, and he commissions them again, and listen to what he says. Again, as a preview to the Great Commission, he says, The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and the places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. If you want to know one of Jesus' main prayer requests, for workers, for laborers, for the harvest. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out foolproof, guaranteed success. No, he says, as lamb among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Wherever you enters someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking whatever, what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. It's here, it's near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of heaven is near. 
Then he said, this is verse 16, to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. Verse 17. And when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, look, I have given you authority over all the power, all the power of the enemy. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. In other words, he's painting a new picture of what it means to follow. No longer will they simply be content to gather as Jews in the temple. No longer will they simply be content to gather in small groups, meeting in people's homes. Now they were to start going out. Now here's what he does. He sends them out to what he's called, or in Matthew would call, the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, go to the ones who are already going to be familiar with the message of the kingdom of God and the coming Messiah. But it's after the Great Commission that he sends them out to all the Gentiles and all ends of the earth as well. Start with those. Start with the prodigals. Start with the ones who grew up in church and got a sour taste in their mouth. Start with the ones who already know and maybe have been exposed to God's love. But maybe because of what man has done, they've shunned the truth of the reality of God in their life. And so he has this very calculated strategy in how he wants to send them out. And when they come back rejoicing, they come back celebrating. He's like, oh, 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 oh. let's be clear. The great triumph isn't in your, of your authority to conquer evil, which you be told. If I somehow got a little bit, you know, just a modicum of Jesus' miracle working power, I would be rejoicing, right? I mean, that's still kind of like this empowered, like, I'm going to go cast out demons. Bam. Like, I don't even need a magic wand. This is really cool. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't rejoice in your power or your authority over evil. Rejoice in God's authority that has taken over your life. See, it's not that you somehow gain a monopoly of the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit gains a monopoly over you. And that what's worth rejoicing and celebrating. See, I think when we want to experience God's presence, we need to allow for it. Maybe even be vulnerable to God's leading. And when it comes to our faith, oftentimes the best thing we can do is let someone new, someone unexpected, care for us in maybe unexpected ways. Um, I think this is also why it says, Jesus later says, um, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. See, Jesus wasn't condemning someone's abundance, but he was saying that it keeps you probably more self-sufficient and experiencing the reality of my presence. And he's like, hospitality is our ability to make room for others, and I want to be a hospitable church. I grew up in that kind of home. That just works. It's an easy expression of faith. But I also have to remind myself, in all of my self-sufficiency, in all of my, I got this, that hospitality is also learning to receive God's care and kindness and generosity and hospitality 
and grace through an unexpected or other source. See, I think the spiritual rhythm of hospitality means having to discern who God has been preparing in advance for us. He sent out these disciples, and he wants to be clear. And disciples tonight, you those of Mission Hills Church, understand that when you leave here, there are going to be people of peace in your life. In fact, I would contend there are already people that if you took the time to list tonight the people who are in your immediate sphere of influence that are unusually and unknowingly attracted to you. And you think, well, it's because of my network, or it's because of my business contacts, or it's because of my talent, or it's because I'm funny and it's my charm or my wit, or it's because, well, they need something from me. Or it's because God has been preparing them in advance and the way he's drawing them to himself is drawing them to you. The way he wants to give to you is through them, but he wants to draw them near. These are what scripture would call people of peace. I think we miss this all the time. Sometimes we wonder, what is it? Have you had the moment where you go, what is it about them that makes them so nice to me? <laughs> kind of a jerk inside. And yet, we stumble into people who want to show us unconditional, unmerited favor, or patience, or grace, and we don't even know them. And it creates a little discomfort, does it not? Now flip that. Haven't you felt that you've also been in a place that you're unusually drawn to someone, that you want to help, that you want to care for? You're like, I don't know what it is about them. I just like them. Could it be that this is the actual ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit doing a work that goes way beyond flesh and blood? And I would contend again that the way we see and experience the presence of God is through hospitality. Both our ability to make room for another, but our ability to receive from another. You have people of peace right now. People who God has prepared in advance for you, and the, the conversation just needs to go to the next level. The conversation needs to go, what Jesus said, proclaim the kingdom of God. So what kind of next steps do you have to offer? You need to come to my church with me. Hey, can we get coffee? Hey, let me just share with you the difference that Christ has made in my life. I have this group of people that if you need to move, I think I can call them like a Minutemen army. They're my tribe. What's a tribe? I don't know. It's a weird group of people that are just willing to help you. People of peace that reside in your life. These are the ones that God is inviting us to show the kind of hospitality and maybe it might mean us learning to receive from them so he can draw them near to him. Real quick, just in closing, let me just say this. Um, I believe every one of us has people of peace in our lives. Um, I think hospitality demonstrates God's presence whether we begin to offer it or whether we begin to receive it tonight. My simple invitation is to just begin to pray. Lord, make me aware. Can I see what you see? Because Jesus' prayer and the initial commission 
right? I want you to go out and teach. I want you to go out and preach. I want you to go out and heal. Because my authority is in you. So when someone you know is sick, maybe the best thing you could do is operate with the authority of God and say, I don't know if this will help, and I don't know if this will weird you out, but can I pray for you? Or when your kids come up sick, do you reach them in Madison County and pull out children's title wrong, or do you say, let's pray first? Because God's authority has been given to us, and he wants us to preach and teach and to heal like he did. Telling other friends 